thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, why do cats play with the food that they catch, where do flies go in the wintertime, and how do snakes eat animals that are much bigger than they are? It is Q&A time, or more strictly we could say Zoo&A time, because this week we're pondering about pets and inquiring about insects to answer the animal-inspired questions that you have been sending in. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first up, let's meet the panel of people who are with us to answer your questions this week. From Anglia Ruskin University is Jacob Dunn. Now, you're here to talk about people's primate ponderings. You study apes and monkeys and primates. Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm a zoologist and I, and I mainly study primates and I'm really interested in the different kinds of noises that they make. Do you get to travel as part of your work? It's always an attraction working on exotic animals. And I've noticed there is this connection. People tend to work on exotic things that live in nice to visit places. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about working with primates is that they basically only live in the tropics pretty much. So, uh, yeah, I do spend quite a lot of time uh, going to... Yeah, I've got a field site in Mexico and, and I lived there for quite a long time and I came back from Japan a couple of weeks ago where I've been working. So, uh, yeah, we get to do a bit of travel. How wonderful. So Jacob will take your questions on anything to do with apes, monkeys, big animals. Sitting next to Jacob is Eleanor Drinkwater. She's from the University of York and actually at the opposite end of the scale, you study things in this country quite often, but things that are very, very small. Yeah, I spend most of my time at the moment studying personality in ants and trying to understand how a personality at the individual level might affect the personality of the whole group. Now, now do ants have personalities. Yes. That, that is quite an <laughs> extraordinary thing to say. Really? Yes, they do. People don't really think about invertebrates having personality. But if you think about how different individuals may react in different environments, which is the definition we tend to use in animal behaviour, yes, you can say invertebrates do show personality. So what do you mean? You have adventurous ants and like more cautious ants, that kind of thing? People tend to use the words shy and bold. So you can have shy individuals or bold individuals, um, which I quite like personally. And, and how do you tell the difference? You can't talk to them. Do you, what do you do? Do you provoke them or something and see if they're kind of out there to sort of say, I'm not putting up with this? How do you test that? Well, a, a classic one is looking at exploration, whether an insect will explore an arena or kind of go and hide. Or you can use aggression assays. One that some people use is they present a particular individual with a say a, a dead individual of another species and and see how aggressive they are towards it so so you're quite right that some of them will go get them <laughs> thanks very much that's tickled me now sitting next to Ellen is jason head he's at cambridge university actually he works on reptiles and things like that so fascinating area yeah i work on a things that are area. very very dead um yeah. i Fossils. am the yeah. i'm the curator of vertebrate paleontology at the university of uh, museum of zoology and in the department of zoology at cambridge and i am interested in studying and understanding the evolution of modern reptile groups both their ecology and their evolution from the perspective of their fossil record so your favorite fossil 
My favorite fossil is the fossil of an animal called Acrocordus. It's a very specialized snake uh, today that lives in Southeast Asia through into Northern Australia. It constricts fish. It has the lowest uh, metabolic rate of any living reptile. And it is the first fossil snake I fell in love with when I was a graduate student. They have an amazing fossil record in Pakistan and India and Nepal, and they're very important in paleoenvironmental indicators. We obviously dated the same girl. <laughs> but um, no, more seriously, when you say it's got this really low metabolic rate, yeah. is that because what it, it presumably hides at the bottom of, of bodies of water and waits for a fish to come by and then grabs it? Yeah, it lives almost completely in water, um, either in brackish water, so kind of a, where the marine waters and fresh water come together or in freshwater lakes and billabongs. So they've gone, some specimens are recorded for having gone well over a year without eating, I believe. Um, but when they feed, they feed incredibly quickly. They grab fish with an amazing speed. They constrict them with this really loose, warty, granular skin to hang on to the fish. And then they just consume them very fast. They'd have to because they don't know where the next meal's coming from if they have to wait a year. Thanks, Jason. And uh, Stuart's also with us, Stuart Eves. He's a vet at Cambridge University. So what took you down that path then? A love of all things fluffy. Yeah. You're a small animal vet or a big yeah, animal Yeah, I'm a small animal vet or at least I, I have to admit I was. So I was lucky enough to study veterinary at the University of Cambridge and then I went into practice for a number of years and ended up back near Cambridge where I got pulled into teaching. And so I've been teaching vets and medics in the first few years for the last... Well, it's now 11 years, which is slightly terrifying. Now, Stuart has a big box with him, and he's brought some of his clientele in. We'll reveal what they are in this box, and it's a big box. And we've seen a little glimpse of them. They're, they're quite cute, but he's going to reveal what they are later in the programme. For those of you at home, we've got a little Guess Who quiz running throughout the show. We'll scatter clues across the hour, but here's your first one. Who or what makes this sound? Any ideas? More clues coming up later on. Now, let's kick off with some questions. And first, this one is for you, Jacob. It's come from Dave. He's on Twitter. And Dave says... Do primates have their own language? So, do primates have their own language? And if so, how do they communicate? So that's a really big question. Uh, and it sort of gets really at the nub of what I'm interested in and spend quite a lot of time thinking about. Language is a very, very complicated thing. It's something that we just do very naturally and, and learn to do with time. Um, and it, the word, I guess, refers to this sort of complex system of multiple parts of grammar and, and, and words that we combine together to form sentences and ideas and so on. Language, of course, doesn't only come in this sort of spoken form that we're using now. It's also written and, and sign language and, and Braille and so on. There's various different forms of language. And, of course, there are languages as well. So the word is a, is, is a, is a complicated idea. The simple answer to the question, do primates have languages? Yes, because humans are primates and, and we use language. And for many thousands of years, other hominin relatives, sort of relatives of humans, would have also been very likely to have been using language. So Neanderthals and Denisova and the hobbits from, from in, uh, Indonesia and so on. And even for quite a long time before that, it's quite likely that other species like Homo erectus were, were using fairly complicated uh, language, sort of at least quite similar to what we what we use now. I've seen the, the brain casts, the so-called endocasts of, of some of the skulls of some of the aforementioned early human ancestors that you mentioned. And, and specifically, they have a bulge in the part of the brain on the left-hand side where modern humans have a bulge, which is our language centre. And paleoanthropologists use this as an argument that probably language was evolving because the brain seems to show the same sort of specialisation. Yeah, there are lots of sort of quite crude markers of what 
might represent language in these hominins for which we've only got a few bones. I suspect the brain's quite a bit more complicated than just yeah. whether on the outside of the brain you have a little bulge. I mean, suppose the- like dogs have that as well, don't they, Stuart? If you look at a dog's brain, it, it's also slightly asymmetric, and we think that's why dogs are quite good at interpreting human language, possibly. It is. Dogs interpreting human language, I would probably argue, is more to do with the tone of it. So when somebody walks in and says... You know, I've spoken to him and he knew he did wrong. It was probably the tone of voice used rather than the words used. So I'd probably be a little bit cautious about saying that a lump on the brain means that they know what they're talking about. But um, the dog in the Guinness Book of Records was called Rico okay. Ringo and, and it had a 300 word vocabulary. Okay. Uh, I mean, it was it was a collie. It's yep. died now, unfortunately, but it had this extraordinary ability. Uh, you might remember um, they did the study where you could show it one of its toys, which it knew the name for, mm. and you could put a whole bunch of these toys that it knew the name for in a next door room and then one new toy that it did not know the name for and never seen before and you can say to it go and get the x from next door and the x it knew it didn't know that name so it would retrieve the toy it didn't yeah. know the name for so it clearly did understand how to engage with and, and process language yeah sure no i think there's, there's certainly ways in which they can make those associations it's a certain amount of conditioning but yes jason i was just wondering if it's a collie that has a 300 word vocabulary how many of those words are synonyms for food? Um, all, I'd say probably almost all of them one way or another because they're all going to translate into treats, aren't they? Anyway, sorry, back to you, you, you Jacob. Back to, to primates and the sounds that they make and if that's language. Basically, it depends on whether people think this is a, a qualitative or a quantitative difference. There are some aspects of what primates say that we might think of as sort of quite simple language. So several primate species have been known to use words in inverted commas that refer to really specific things in their environment for example to predators or food and they only use those words in those exact contexts you know when they see a a leopard or, or an eagle or something and they use that word only then so they have this sort of equivalent to what we call semantics in in language sort of labeling things referring to things in the world and the other aspect of primate communication, which represents something which is similar to, to something linguistic, um, is that they also combine words, what we call syntax in, in human language. So they say A and B together, and that means something different from A and B independently. And so they're on a sort of very different end of this scale. The question is whether that's a continuum and, and we're on the language end and they're on the simple end and they use proto-language or whether it's something completely different. And that's quite subjective. Thank you very much for that, Jacob. Now, Ellen, here's a question for you. It's coming on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum from Chris. And it says, where do flies go in the wintertime? Because this is absolutely true. Um, you know, you don't see them buzzing around outside so much, but they don't go away either. So where do they hang out? Well, so this is this is a really good question. And, you know, there are around 7,000 fly species in the UK. And unfortunately, most of the airtime goes to, pardon the pun, go to house flies or, or blue bottles, you know, the kind of big ones that we see buzzing around the place. So for a lot of the, the species, which are much smaller and you don't necessarily notice, they'll be active all the year round. But for the big fellas that you might notice aren't around at this time of year, they actually hibernate over winter. Say taking the house fly, for, for example, it'll have um, different generations will be living and breeding over summer. And then in the kind of towards the winter, those that get born just as it's getting cold will then build up fat reserves and then will go find themselves somewhere cosy. So it could be somewhere like behind a pitcher in your house or, you know, in a nice corner. And then they hibernate throughout the winter and then emerge when it gets warmer and then lay their eggs. Um, which is why occasionally in the winter you might find the odd fly like flying around your house and you're like, where did this come from? And it's because, you know, maybe you've turned up the heating a little bit and it's suddenly woken up and it thinks it's springtime. Usually um, in my case, it's a mouse corpse in the loft. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so the bottom line is then, these things are there all year round. Some of them hang out by hibernating, by having laid down body fat. I'm just, just sort of my mind is racing with the idea yeah. of an obese housefly. But, <laughs> so they, they store up fat reserves for the winter and then they're ready to go when the spring comes, the weather warms up. If, if you look at a fly... Uh, which you, you might not have done, but, you know, if, if, if you like bugs, uh, you might... <laughs> in your spare time. Um, if, you, if you look at the, a fly right at the end of its hibernation, you know, it might seem a lot more skinny then, but they, they quickly build up their, 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 their fat reserves again after winter. It's good to hear, Eleanor. Yeah. Thanks. Now, Jason, um, from one tiny animal to something a little bit bigger, this is from Sarah in London. How is it that snakes eat and digest animals massively bigger than they are. Indeed. I mean, when we see them eating things that you just think, how on earth did that get inside that? How do snakes do it? Well, so the important thing about snakes and feeding is that other animals will eat prey items larger than they are. So animals will kill other larger animals and eat them. But most animals have the ability to actually break down what they've just killed into small bite-sized chunks, either by tearing at it with their mouths or using their limbs. Um, snakes, of course, not have any limbs and having very specialized bodies don't have that luxury. There's only one species that will actually take its prey item, which are crabs, and break them apart in bite-sized chunks and then eat the chunks. Well, how does it do it then? Um, that snake does that by basically pushing its body against the crab and then grabbing a limb and pulling those pieces off. And of course, since crabs are jointed and segmented, it's fairly easy to do. But for most snakes, what they end up having to do is to basically kill a prey item and then get it from outside to inside, which effectively means that the snake is walking over the prey item itself. So it's basically taking its body and moving it over. The specialists for eating big things are boas and pythons. They're the real large prey specialists and their physiologies are really specialized for building the body up when it's time to eat and then metabolizing the body itself when it's not. So we know from studies of pythons that after they've eaten, they actually build up heart muscle. So these animals will build up their hearts. They'll build up the circulatory system. They'll build up their stomach to digest the animal they've just eaten, some large prey item. And then over the course of having completed digestion, they'll slowly actually start to metabolize their own body tissues to basically conserve energy. And so they have these specialized digestive enzymes where they can completely digest whatever prey item. Uh, with mammals, it's usually only things that are made of keratin that survive. That's the hair, um, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So hair and nails. Um, everything else is digested by the snake. They're incredibly the efficient digestion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good grief, Stuart. So, having been at a child's party earlier on and tried to tackle Hang a rather a large We're piece of cake. We're just talking about snakes eating <laughs> large I things. Am, I am getting there. I am getting there. And the question would be, how do they breathe? Because if they're going to walk over, say, a rat, mm-hmm. presumably that is going to be a relatively large kind of piece of prey, there must be a point where they struggle to breathe. You can see how, how the party went for me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're getting tempted to sort of feed, feed a four-year-old to, to no, an I tried, I tried something that was way larger than I should have. <laughs> It's an interesting question. Well, actually, I should say I don't know if there have been studies that have actually looked at respiration while they feed. Certainly, they can go periods of time without breathing. Amazing. So they can move the prey item down. The trachea and the lungs of snakes are really very, very specialized in and themselves, and I think it would be very hard to actually pinch that off. Can snakes throw up? Because what oh, about yeah. if, they, if, they, if they take something in and then they think, oh, second thoughts, this is a bit less digestible than I had in mind, can they get rid of it? They can, and they'll do that when they're threatened, actually. So um, there's lots of videos you can see online of people kind of finding a snake and harassing the snake until it vomits up its prey. It's incredibly damaging to the snake to do that. So don't ever do that if you see a, a snake that's just fed. I've, I've never seen snake feces. Do snakes poo? 
Uh, they do. Um, I've kept pythons before. It's not enjoyable. Um, but it is it is just bits of resistant tissues, again, like hair and nails, and then um, big piles of uric acid. Right. So what what is it like, a Mr. Whippy 99 flake sort of action? Or is it just little bits of debris? Because there can't be much left at the end of this. It's uh, much more like bird poo than you might think. They're both well, that reptiles. figures given the evolutionary exactly. relationship. Um, with, with, again, you know, some of the more resistant bits in a, uh, shall we say, more identifiable bolus. You were going to ask something, Eleanor. Oh, this is a really disgusting question. Uh, but I've, I'd be curious for this. Once in the jungle, we came across a snake and we tried to move it off the path but the person who picked it up it, it was still alive but it fell apart and inside it was this like rotting decaying mouse and we thought it might be because it got cold and it wasn't able to digest it or, or would it be that the snake was sick and couldn't well, you're saying the snake it? fell to pieces yes it was the most horrifying thing i've ever seen before you you ran into a very unhealthy snake it sounds it's like too cold for them or? um i assume it would i don't know enough about kind of tropical snakes and that but i one of the interesting things about some of the very potent toxic venoms that snakes have one of the theories behind viper venoms the rattlesnakes and vipers with those big hypodermic needle-like teeth is that that's actually an adaptation for injecting the prey with digestive enzymes in a cool environment where you actually wouldn't be really effective at, at breaking down the prey item. So what you do is you instead you just give it a shot of digestive juice to begin with. Um, question we get asked quite a bit is, is a snake resistant to its own venom? So if a cobra bit itself or bit a cobra identical to it, would it be vulnerable to its own venom? To my understanding, yes. Thank you for clearing that one up. Now, Stuart, here's a question. Speaking of things we get asked a lot, Kiva on Twitter has asked, why can't my dog eat chocolate? We're always told, do not feed chocolate to your dogs. Why? Sure. Well, it's quite timely given that Easter is coming, and that's certainly for vets. That's the big time when these things tend to happen. The fact is that chocolate contains an active ingredient, theobromine, which is relatively toxic and, and it has a certain kind of toxic element to us. But we metabolise it, we break it down into various compounds rapidly and while they have some activity, much less so. On the other hand, unfortunately, dogs have this enzyme pathway, this way of breaking it down, which creates a lot of very active components. And what that usually means, is I think I think the numbers go something along the lines of we would break it down within, it should be half gone after about six hours. Whereas dogs, it's something like 18. And it just stays too high, too long for them. Now, the one thing to say is it does depend on the chocolate. Every vet out there will know. We all have these anecdotes of a Jack Russell which ate a large bar of chocolate and seemed fine. And then we have one of a Great Dane which ate a small amount of chocolate and there was a problem. So the dose varies massively and the quality of the chocolate really matters what does it do to the dog how would you know if your dog had got chocolate poisoned obviously sure. you'd see the wrapper left all over the floor but <laughs> but how might you spot this yeah absolutely well, well it stimulates it's, it's a stimulant so it's actually very similar to caffeine in, in coffee or, or something called theophylline which is in tea so heart rate goes up blood pressure changes all over the place a usual response and we've already been on vomiting so i feel okay to now broach this a usual response of dogs is to vomit and actually hopefully that's the best thing if they have brought it up but they're the kind of signs you see jacob i was just gonna ask whether dogs are lactose tolerant because quite a lot of cats are lactose intolerant aren't they and presumably if it's milk chocolate that might be another cause of 
Their tummy's going a bit funny. Yeah, uh, tummy's going funny. Yes, I mean, in theory, absolutely. That's kind of okay. What I'm more worried about is things like you get these nice chocolates now that contain raisins. Now there's a problem with raisins and dogs. Um, and of course, really? Coffee what? beans. Yeah, the, the tannins in raisins are, are another risk factor. So, um, yeah, raisins themselves are, are quite toxic. Because I had a dog that loved grapes, and of course that raisin is just a dried grape. So if it yeah, eats they a big concentrate bunch of if you, you concentrate if you dry them. So it's the difference between grapes and wine, I guess. So. Uh, yeah, it's just the combination that you have. What about other types of, like, pet? What about cats? Can, I, can cats eat chocolate or is it the same story? Um, it would be the same story, but they don't. And, and the underlying reason is actually that they... Um, so cats actually have a defect in one of their two... So taste receptors, when they actually taste sugar and when we taste sugar, it's made up of two halves of a receptor. Yeah. Cats actually have a defect in one of them, which means they don't taste sweet stuff. So they won't eat it. I hope I'm right on that one, but that's certainly what we said. But I've just got this horrible so kind you're of image. Cats of cats cannot taste. If you gave them a choice between something sweet and something not sweet, they would not be able to discriminate. Nope, they can't taste sweet because they they live on protein bars of mice. Then it doesn't matter. You don't need to. You don't need to do sweet. Um, so no, Stuart. Thank you very much. From baffling British weather, the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here, to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Naked Scientist, we've got a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions. Still to come on the programme, we'll find out whether ants can feasibly get lost if they wander off from their colony. Also, why do cats tend to play with the food that they catch? Meanwhile, here is the next bit of our Guess Who game. Remember, we're asking you to try and identify what this particular creature or thing is. We played you the noise. I'll just remind you what it sounds like. Now, your second clue is that in the wild, the animal making this sound may only need to drink once every three to four days. They get lots and lots of fluid from their food. So what do you think this animal might possibly be? Now, we've asked our guest to bring in something interesting to show us each of them this week. And uh, I told you at the beginning, Stuart turned up with an enormous box. What's in there, Stuart? Okay, well, I I have to say at this point that your producer talked me down from the original plan, which was to bring in what is called a sulcata tortoise, which is about two stone of very (laughs) angry shell. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to dive down into the box now. Um, And we have two red foot tortoises, which are kind of pets of ours from home. We we have a whole range of tortoises. um, And I thought it would be a fun thing. um, Because that's a shell of a show and tell. (laughs) um, Oh, my goodness, that's that's enormous. Yeah, what I've got in my hand is she's probably about 25, 30 centimetres long. This is this is Tina, who's one of our redfoots. So she's quite a dark coloured tortoise, but then actually the really striking thing about her is on her front legs she has these really bright cherry red scales really. How do they grow? Um in terms of with the shell. Yeah. So very much like trees or, or very much like nails, if you like, they effectively add an extra kind of layer where the two plates come into contact with one another. So the bumpy bits on the outside, yeah. that's each of those is a plate? Effectively, it's it's a plate. There would just be multiple ones So it's made them. of keratin, is it? The same it, stuff as it's my made of. It's very similar to bone, and certainly the ones along the top will actually be fused with her backbone, her vertebrae. So the, the shell and, and their actual kind of skeleton is, is one thing. 
but yes. They're depositing a new layer, almost like nail growth, all the way around each of those sort of square yes. plates. And, yeah, and the, so the whole shell grows. Like tree rings, yeah, yeah, just adding and adding, I guess, just because there's a junction. Jacob? I just have a question because at the moment my daughter Lily is looking for her next pet. She's a budding animal rescuer. How cat-proof are tortoises? Um, It's also the question of how tortoise-proof is the cat. Um, (laughs) It's difficult. It would depend on the individuals. These things, they do have very good defences. They'll put their head in, they'll bring their front feet up to protect themselves but they are very good pets all i would always say is that a bit of research on on how they live because these are highly specialized animals talking of being a good pet is it actually pooing right now uh, there's a possibility <laughs> um yeah yeah, yeah. moving swiftly on uh, rather like the tortoise uh, or not um what about their hibernation though because these animals do hibernate don't they because they would they would normally have a long sleep because my mum used to have a couple of tortoises when i was very little um and we used to put them in a box in the shed for the winter time and they would go to sleep so what is their normal life cycle sure one thing to say is some some tortoises will hibernate and others don't so tina who i've got in my hand and then solomon who's a boyfriend who's who's still in the box they are not the type of tortoise that will hibernate and it goes back to to really where they're from if they're from the tropics there would be no real change in season there's mm. no real kind of need they might actually do the opposite and they might estivate and they actually kind of see their way through the summer and warmer times by hiding how it's done um will some people put them in the fridge and, and that, that initiates now, the process. Yeah, well, the, the slow drop in temperature, you need to take them down to five to eight degrees. Um, I need, do need to qualify that by saying just not just any fridge. They do need ventilation and other things. But yes, it's not uncommon. I've known friends where you go around their house, you open up the fridge in the garage, and, and what is in there is a whole load of tortoises. <laughs> and they're I, not for dinner. We should emphasize then. I, I, I've been assured they're not. Goodness me. Stuart, thank you very much for bringing in Tina and Solomon. It's very nice to meet them. Hopefully they're not going to destroy the studio anymore (laughs) while they're with us. Now, Jacob, at the other end of the spectrum, you've put down a pot of rather sinister-looking something next to my chocolate biscuit, which is making me quite alarmed. What's in that pot? Well, I bought sort of two related uh, things for show and tell here. One is from one end and one is from the other end. So I'll start with the the top end. This is a, a howler monkey skull. These are what I study, which are primates from Latin America all the way from Mexico down to Argentina. And they make these incredible noises. And the reason they can make these incredible noises is because they've got this big, big bone, which all vertebrates have. But in howler monkeys, it's sort of expanded into this huge sort of cup-shaped chamber. And it's just this most incredible feature of the howler yeah, monkeys. Because in us, that's a little strip. It's, it's thinner than a, than a finger that's sort of across the middle of your neck. If you're going to sort of cut someone's throat, that's roughly where the hyoid bone, isn't it? And exactly. It's just there to stabilise the muscles in the neck. But that's huge. And it's, it's in the it's same place. It's thing. In all primates, it's in the same place. But howler monkeys have developed this trick to expand it. And they've got this really adapted hyoid bone that's sort of this, this big sort and of And that's balloon. how they make the sound they make. They do this inhale and exhale and they go... That's very good. You can see that you spent some time with them. I have spent a lot of time with howler <laughs> monkeys. They've learned to copy you. <laughs> and when spending time with howler monkeys, most of the time that I've spent in the jungle, which was about five years in total, I guess, I was collecting stuff from the other end. So what I've got uh, in this other tube here is some howler monkey poo. Yeah. And, and there's a good reason why poo is a really wonderful resource for biologists. But you can sequence DNA from poo. 
You can work out what they've been eating, both from the sort of seeds and things you find in there, as well as sequencing the DNA of any bugs or fruit or anything. You can also look at what bacteria are in there. So you can actually learn an incredible amount from collecting poo without having to be invasive. You don't have to capture yeah. the animal so or there's anything. There's no stress to the animals. No you just go the and, and you can follow because you can identify the DNA of the individual that made the poo in the poo. Exactly. You can track individuals and see how their yeah. life is changing, how seasons and, and other factors are affecting them. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you. Jacob, very much. Now, Jason, you are holding your mobile phone. Are you going to do something with that? Yeah. So um, because I work with fossils, I don't have the capacity to bring them in. But um, because we're talking about kind of large-bodied reptiles and things like that on this trip, what I have actually is a clip on my phone. It's a video clip that I took two summers ago when I had the opportunity to go to Rinka Island in Komodo National Park in Indonesia. And so I'm just going to pass this over. And you can hit play and let us know so what you're seeing. giving the phone to Eleanor. <laughs> oh, there's an adorable comedy dragon, which is kind of wandering over. <laughs> and when you say adorable, how, how big relative to Jason? Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe, how, how big would you say that was? That one was two meters long. Oh, it's really cute. And, and is it after him? Well, it's kind of walking towards him and it's kind of going a little bit faster. He just wants to say hello. We were in the forest on, on Rinka Island. Um, yeah. And the dragons are, they're very habitat specific in the national park area. So they, dragons are born in these little valleys and they'll actually live their whole lives in the valleys. But when you have a lot of tourism moving through and tourism is starting to become a problem for the national park, the dragons will move around a little more. And this one was just kind of coming up very quietly to, um, <laughs> I'm sure, say hello and not and? bite through my Achilles tendon or anything like that. Uh, but fortunately, I, the, I was with some dragon biologists who were quite adept at using large sticks to gently just fend it off. prod the dragon off. Yes. Don't they have some really nasty stuff in their saliva that would do you damage if they were to bite you? Yeah, there, there's been a whole history of study and, and conjecture about Komodo dragon saliva that it was – for many years it was thought that they had this kind of toxic bite, a septic bite, because it was thought that they would collect rotting meat in the serrations on their teeth and that would generate all these toxic bacteria because we know that dragons will bite water buffalo. And the water buffalo will die of sepsis. They'll die of, a, of an infection in the wound, usually weeks later. And the dragons will kind of follow them around for weeks until they keel over and they'll eat them. Um, more recent studies have shown that there actually are some specialized enzymes in their saliva that basically lower blood pressure and are also anticoagulants. So they keep the wound open. They're not toxic venoms in the way that a cobra or a rattlesnake would have them, but they do definitely facilitate keeping the wound open. And probably what is happening is that animals that the dragons bite are mostly standing in puddles of bird feces. So that's how they get the sepsis. So I think that this is these are strategies for the dragons to be able to eat the, the food items. They're amazing creatures, aren't they? Because they, they can also start a new colony of dragons from just one female dragon because genetically they can undergo parthenogenesis. And yes. the, the next generation in an egg, if it's not fertilised, actually ends up being male by default. So if you've got just a female washed up on a, a remote shore or something, the egg she lays will by definition turn into a male. So you can then start a new sort of sexual reproductive cycle with them. They're amazing creatures. Yeah, and I think that was discovered at the Chester Zoo when they had one female who had yeah. never mated yeah. and gave birth to viable eggs. In 2005, 2006, yeah. they actually published it as a paper in Nature. I, I remember uh, yeah. reading about it. Eleanor, you, you've got a packet there. It's not as thrilling as a pot of poo but what's in your little packet so i say it's just as thrilling as a pot of poo if not even better because it's to do with invertebrates so this is actually a tag which we had custom made to track titan beetles in the french garden and rainforest yeah sure to describe this for people there is a little ball it's about the size of my little fingernail and sticking out of it is this long 
thin hair-like projection. It's about the size of a hair, actually, but it, it's a little aerial, yep. like a little antenna. Yeah. Is that a tag? Yep, so that's a tag. For what? So that's for a titan beetle. So titan beetles... You glue that on a beetle? Yeah, well, we were trying to understand the movement of this particular beetle. It's the biggest beetle in the world, but no one knows anything about its behaviour. How big's big? So the biggest it gets to is 16.7 centimetres. Um, so the biggest one we found was 15 centimetres. And, you know, you can pretty much have a wrestling match that's with big. the creature that's... Yeah. And occasionally they'd break out of, of, of their tanks and trash our kitchen. They were very, <laughs> very destructive little creatures. So, so yeah, so they're amazing. And what have you learned? The reason why we were interested in them is that they're highly trafficked as a species. They're very, very valuable. We get collectors who pay a lot of money to have dead specimens of this animal. And unfortunately, a lot of our specimens were actually recaptured by uh, local hunters in the area. So, so, so you that don't was, get any data? We did, we did get some data, but it was very unfortunate whenever we would track our data and then we'd track it to a person and then he'd be like, oh, is this yours? And you'd be like, yes, that's mine. So in that gadget, yeah. is there a little power supply that then beams a signal out yeah. that you can track? Yeah. So How long does it last for? So it, they last about two or three weeks. And they have a pretty good range on them, particularly, you know, considering that we're working in very, very dense, dense rainforests. And how so, far do these beetles move? Because they're big. You're saying 15 yeah. centimetres across. What's their range? Yeah, so they're really interesting. Most of the time, they don't do anything. They kind of sit around and we track them over a while and we just found that they moved less than a metre. And then on certain days, we didn't manage to, to track this. But according to anecdotal reports from local entomologists, they climb up trees and then they use the height of the tree essentially to kind of parachute down and apparently they reckon that they can go kilometres like this, which is just, I would love to see it. They weigh a lot. Maybe 30 grams, our biggest one. Oh, OK. So, so, but, but even so, that's... a beetle, that's... that's, that's uh, I'm just thinking yeah, it's like exactly. a cricket ball coming at you. Yeah. But, uh, or a football, yeah, actually, exactly. isn't it? Coming and, at you from the sky. Yeah, that's you, you have to be big. pretty careful as well. You know, he's got these incredible <laughs> mandibles that can actually bite the bone. So if it gets your finger, oh, nice. it's a quick trip to the hospital. <laughs> Amazing stuff that you get up to, Eleanor. Thank you very much. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. It's a zoo and a this week. We're answering the animal-inspired questions you've been sending in to us here at The Naked Scientist. And with me is a panel of experts who are ready to take on your questions. Reptile expert, Jason Head. Jacob Dunn is from Anglia Ruskin University and he knows about primates. Eleanor Drinkwater is from the University of York and she's an insect expert. And Stuart Eves is a vet at the University of Cambridge. Now, if you want to ask us a question on a show like this, then tweet it to at Naked Scientists or email it in. It's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Don't forget, we've also got a game of Guess Who, which is running through the programme. We heard the noise that the thing made. We also learned that it will drink only every three or four days. And your third clue is they're usually found in groups, and those groups consist of a mother and her young or a coalition of males who live and hunt together. What do you think it is? Now, it's quiz time. This is where we pair up our panel and they have a go at uh, three rounds of quiz questions and they are competing for a prize beyond price, which is the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award. Our teams are Jacob and Eleanor on Team 1 and Jason and Stuart on Team 2. So, first of all, this is Weird Science, round one. Which of these animals, uh, Jacob and Eleanor, has the highest blood pressure? Elephant... Blue whale, giraffe, or flea? What do you think? Must be giraffe. They've got really long le- yeah. necks. Yeah. <laughs> really long necks. That'll do it. Fleas don't have blood. blood You're going to go giraffe? The head yeah. there, giraffe. Yeah, giraffe, okay. 
Yep, that's absolutely right. Owing to their long necks, giraffes do require a significant blood pressure, 280 over 180 millimetres of mercury. Uh, that's more than double the human equivalent. Uh, in a human, it's about 120 over 80. Elephants are a close contender, 180 over 20 for an elephant. But whales have very low blood pressure, despite having blood vessels you could drive a car through in some cases. They've got such big blood vessels that the blood pressure is actually quite low and they're in a marine environment, which also makes a difference. So well done. Plus one to you. Right, Jason and Stuart, here is your question. What's the biggest fruit that a blue whale could swallow? Is it A, a watermelon... B, a grapefruit, C, a kiwi, or D, a grape. What do you think? I'm going to work on the fact that because I think they probably eat an awful lot of krill, they don't actually probably need a massive esophagus to get it down. So I'm I'm erring towards the smaller end. I'd probably pitch kiwi. I'm, I'm going to go with the caveat that everything I work on is dead uh, <laughs> when it comes to thinking about this answer. Um, they do have large throats. I would be tempted i've i've lost this quiz every time i've played it <laughs> um, now i'm told now which, I'm told. which makes me think that my answer is probably wrong although i would think they would have a larger esophagus it, i would probably um gonna have to hurry you uh, grapefruit you're going grapefruit i'll, I'll go with, I'll go with so the vet is deferring to the guy who works on dead stuff <laughs> yeah but it's the right decision because it is a grapefruit the blue whale's esophagus for the right reasoning is only four <laughs> inches in diameter they feed on plankton exactly as you say Stuart they also eat small fish and marine crustaceans so they don't really need to swallow very much a grapefruit size object would fit down right round two back to Jacob and Eleanor it's one each on the scores at the moment so you're level pegging um, is this true or false your dog could catch your cold what do you think no no it can't be no i don't think so that doesn't sound right false false you can't give a cold to a dog hope not you're absolutely right. It is indeed false. Uh, the viruses that cause human common colds, like rhinoviruses, are quite different from their canine equivalent. So your dog isn't going to catch your cold if you sneeze on it. But there is an exception. Influenza viruses can jump between owners and their pets. That includes dogs. And there's also one study in the literature in 2009. A pet cat is documented to have died of swine flu. The owner got a catastrophic dose of swine flu and transmitted the infection to the cat. Plus one to you. Back to Jason and Stuart. Flies can taste food through their feet. What do you reckon? True or false? Did we make that up or is that true? Something in the back of my head said I've heard this before and the answer is yes. I will go with that as well. You're on fire. Everyone's doing very well. You, you might be changing history for yourself tonight, Jason. <laughs> Indeed, yes. The legs and the feet of flies, including butterflies, have structures. They're called chemosensili. They're the insect equivalent of taste buds, so they taste their food by walking on it. And that's pretty important because before they stick their proboscis, the long straw-like thing, they're going to suck the food up through to eat. They don't want to suck up something they don't like, but they've got to get it into them before they discover they don't want it. So that's why they walk on it first to see what it tastes like and see if it tastes juicy. So we're level pegging, two all. So it's all on this round. Decide whether it goes to a tiebreaker. This round is called Weighty Matters. Which weighs more, Jacob and Eleanor, one ostrich egg or 30 chicken's eggs? Oh. Oh. One ostrich egg, I would They're say. really big, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, they're But 30 really is quite a lot. 30 is quite a lot. That's like, that's like Does many... It depend on the size of the chicken egg? I mean, yeah, when you go point. to the supermarket, well, you get yeah. small, medium and large. Going <laughs> mm. to have to hurry you. Ostrich. Ostrich, OK, let's go with the ostrich. You're going ostrich. Oh, no. no! I'm sorry. It's actually the chicken eggs because the ostrich egg is the largest egg. It weighs 1.6 kilos and it's the equivalent of 25 big oh. hen's eggs. 
it takes 35 minutes to soft boil one, apparently. <laughs> this is my recipe du jour. <laughs> Jason Stewart, let's see if you can clinch it with this one and, and change um, or undo the PTSD that Jason's clearly <laughs> suffering from as a consequence of previous experiences on the programme. All of the humans on Earth or all of the ants on Earth? What weighs more? Um, yeah, uh, we'll go with ants. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm really sorry. No, it's actually the humans. There are more than 7 billion people. The combined weight of 7 billion people is more than 330 billion kilos. Now, the estimates vary for the numbers of ants, but if we take an upper limit of more than 10,000 trillion ants on Earth, which seems reasonable, the combined weight of all the ants will therefore be 40 billion kilos because an ant weighs about 4 milligrams. So we do outweigh the ants by about 10 to 1. So it's a level pegging onto a tiebreaker. Oh. Right, OK. You can still win, Jason. It's OK. You can, st- you can do this. OK. This part of the show, what you've got to do is you've got to guess, OK, and the person who gets the closest answer gets the point. So it's all on this one. There is enough human DNA in an average person to go from the sun to Pluto and back. How many times do you think? You may confer in your teams. I'll ask you what you think the answer is, and uh, then we'll, we'll work out who's closest. So we'll start with Jason and Stuart. What do you guys think? What's your answer for the Pluto? I answer? think we'll go twice. Twice? And what was your answer on this we, we, side? We decided to go for, for eight, times. eight times. Eight times. Well, I'm sorry to say, Jason, you have not won. Okay. <laughs> yeah. The answer is 17 times. It's six Whoa! billion kilometres to Pluto. There are two wow. metres of DNA in every single one of your between 37 and 100 trillion cells in a person, which means actually you've got enough in there to go 17 times to Pluto and back if you strangle your DNA end to end. So the winners this week, please give them a big round of applause. <laughs> Jacob and Eleanor are the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week. Absolutely brilliant. Right, let's go back to the questions. And uh, we've got a question here for you, Jacob. So this person says, what is the difference difference between a monkey and an ape the words are just used all the time but what's the distinction in basic terms in simple terms primates are distinguished into two major groups so there's the group that has the lemurs and lorises and and bush babies and then there's the other big group of which we are part which are all the monkeys and apes and these other funny ones the tardiest but we won't worry about them and so simply put within this group of the monkeys and the apes Monkeys are everything you find in the Americas and and all the monkeys that you find in in Asia and Africa. And the apes are just the apes. So um, gibbons, gorillas, orangutans, bonobos, chimpanzees and humans. And primates, the word primate? Primates are all of these things. So all of the lemurs and lorises and, and all of the monkeys and all of the apes, they are all primates. And this is where the sort of slightly more complicated answer comes in, um, because Really, the sort of the bigger layer is is primates, and then within the group of the monkeys and the apes, the next sort of layer within this nested hierarchy, if you like, um, is what we would call monkeys. And within that, we find the apes. So in sort of technical, cladistic terms, in terms of organising species, actually, apes are monkeys. Um, And so that's where it starts to get a bit more complicated and circular. So the, the words monkeys and apes are actually, in scientific terms, they're not very useful words. But in the sort of simple terms, it's, it's the difference that I, that I said with the simple answer. Well, thank you very much for making it simple, Jacob. That, that certainly cleared it up for me. Uh, now, moving on, Eleanor, got a question here for you, which is, um, why do some insects only survive for a day, like mayflies, for example? Why not, given all the effort they've gone to, to turn into this beautiful fly, why not make it last a bit longer? Why not milk it more? Well, basically, it's because they are brilliant and they are just just amazingly adapted to be able to carry out the entirety of reproduction that most kind of you know mammals and other animals take ages to do they can do they're so well adapted that they can do it 
just within 24 hours or a couple of days. Um, so if you think about the different adaptations that the species come up with, so you have a mass emergence, so they all emerge at the same time, so they can easily find a mate. They emerge in sites where they can also lay their eggs, so they don't need to find a site to, to, to lay their eggs. And also, their bodies are completely adapted to finding a mate. So while they are looking for a mate, they don't actually have working mouth parts. They can't actually feed. So they are just entirely focused on finding finding a mate. So so the answer is really is because they can do everything that they need to within that really short time frame. Stuart? Sorry, I have to just say that one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen watching a nature documentary is they went through the entire life stage of the mayfly oh. and there was the point where it just rose out of the water in its flying stage, I presume, yeah. and then the trout came up and got him. Oh. And, and of all the documentaries I've seen, you think, oh, that's such a shame because what, what's the kind of ratio between how long they're, they're in their kind of larval stage and then when they actually fly for the day? I'm, I'm not sure, but you get a lot of invertebrates which have a really long larval stage and then they yeah. only emerge for a, a few a few days. Um, so, for example, the, the beetle, which I mentioned before, the titan beetle, uh, which, I stu- which I've studied, it can live, they estimate it li- lives as a larvae for like five, you know, possibly ten years and then it merges for two weeks and then dies, which I just think amazing. But but I, I think, I think though, it's, you know, it's the journey, not just the destination, you know? <laughs> you know, it might be great being a larvae. <laughs> some cicadas like that don't they have uh, sort of prime number ratios where they come out on every 13 years or so some of them and uh, they, they've literally been underground for that long and then they come out do their thing mate and then that's it for them uh, I, I don't know about cicadas precisely but there are some amazing adaptations to be able to 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 be able to work out when everybody else is emerging at the same time it's just crazy it's like coral spawning i suppose jacob I was going to say, I think there are some vertebrates that have similar strategies as well. Maybe you guys can help me out a little bit. I'm struggling to think of examples, but I think maybe octopus as well. And they're called Samopara species that basically just have a a one-off reproduction in their lifetime and they go all out and sort of, you know, they have millions and millions of gametes and they just go crazy and then they die pretty much immediately afterwards. Whether you guys can help me out with any more examples. Yeah, no, certainly in my line of work, this is, uh, yeah, we breed more often and I guess in the mammalian side of things. Cheers, Stuart. Now, this is from Jake on Twitter, Jason, who says, how come reptiles stop being so big like the dinosaurs? What happened? The reason that we don't have terrestrial reptiles the size of Mesozoic dinosaurs today is that that particular history stopped in a series of extinction events st- throughout the Mesozoic. Um, living dinosaurs, of course, are birds, and there have been some really big birds throughout their history. But birds are specialized for being comparatively lightweight. Their bird bodies are adapted for flying for the most part. Other groups of large reptiles, things like snakes, crocodiles, turtles, lizards, um, all have these different histories of large body size evolution through time. And actually one of my graduate students is working on this very question right now about whether there are big trends. Um, but really what's happened in the Cenozoic since, since the end of the Cretaceous the last 66 million years, is that the large body size niche is pretty much occupied by mammals right now. So we don't really see opportunities for any of the living reptile groups to to adapt to any of those environments. And it really has to do with eating plants and how mammals, modern mammals are specialized to eat plants in a way that living reptiles aren't. Well, from very, very big things to very, very small things. Eleanor, David asked this on the Naked Scientist Forum. He said, what happens to an ant if I blow it off my third floor balcony and into the garden? Will it wander off and and find another ant colony to join? Oh, 
Probably not, sadly. Ants tend to be very territorial, so chances are he'd probably wander into someone else's territory and, and, and unfortunate things might happen to him. But I'm going to caveat this by saying that different ant species have incredible navigational abilities. So if it's still within the foraging range of, of this particular colony, which sounds unlikely given the scale, they might just find their, their way back. Different ants navigate in different ways. So, like, for example... Um, some desert ants, they count the number of steps away from their, their nest, um, whereas other ones would rely on visual cues. So there was a, a study done on sugar ants in which they picked it up and they plonked it somewhere which was still within the foraging range but away from home and they kind of found that they could find their way back. But if it was outside the foraging range, the poor little fellows would walk round and round in circles trying to find visual cues, which unfortunately they wouldn't because they're out of their range. So... So it's curtains for, for the ant off the third floor balcony, probably. Well, you know, yeah, probably. <laughs> Thank you, Eleanor. Now, Stuart, Annie's got this question for you, and Annie wants to know, why do cats play with the food that they catch? They catch a mouse and then they sort of relentlessly tease it, don't they? Why? Sure. I mean, it's an excellent question, and there's, there's really two trains of thought, one of which I don't really buy into, which is that it's there to tire them out. The idea being that if you tire them, then the mouse is unlikely to bite the cat's paw or something. One of the ideas that I do really kind of buy into is the idea that you're testing the fitness of your prey. Um, so if we think about mice, there's things like they could have eaten poison. And what they're doing is they're making sure that the, the mouse is behaving normally, such that it, it can, if you like, it can fight back, that it's behaving normally. Um, one of the big threats to cats certainly is a, a parasite called toxoplasma, which can alter, well, it does alter the mouse's behaviour. It actually makes them much more bold and so if the cat gets a feeling that this mouse isn't behaving normally it may kill it but it might not eat it it's along those lines and that that rings true for me that seems reasonable jason is toxoplasma bad for cats um it's not particularly bad for the cat it can cause them to lose litters of kittens it's incredibly bad for people it's incredibly bad for almost every mammal but the cat is the the definitive host the cat is is where the toxoplasma wants to be and where it breeds and as such actually it tries not to if you like hurt the cat so if a human catches toxoplasma, then it gets into all our tissues, including our brain. And some people have suggested it may even change human behaviour. So mm. are you saying then that when toxoplasma goes into a cat, it doesn't go through the cat's body and into all its tissues and its brain like that? Well, it will certainly circulate around. But it's, the idea really with the cat is that it's got to get to a position where it can, it can pass to other generations of cats and, of course, eventually get back into a host. So, it doesn't um, want to kill the cat. It doesn't want to kill the cat. It's got no advantage in killing the cat particularly. Um, but it, it, found, it finds itself accidentally in, in other mammals. I've never thought about a cat playing with its food being a test of food fitness before, but there you go. There's an interesting spin on that. Thank you, Stuart. Now, Eleanor, this one uh, certainly strikes a chord with me. This person says, how come all the biggest insects tend to be in tropical regions? I think they're talking about things like you know big spiders. They're not insects, obviously, but they're a you know, similar sort of thing. Aren't they eat insects, stick insects and so on, centipedes, millipedes. You get these giant things but not, not in cold countries like Britain. Why? Well, this is one of the things I love most about the tropics is the incredible sizes of just just spiders that will blow your mind and, and beautiful beetles. Um, well, it's, it's really down to two really simple things. For something which is an invertebrate to get big, it tends to need two things, one of which is... Um, warmth helps it's it's better if it's a bit warmer and then also having constant access to food so somewhere like the uk you know you have this problem about winter and so you know everything kind of stops over winter whereas in the tropics you kind of have this amazing opportunity for things to be able to develop 
all the year round, which is why you end up getting the opportunity for some of these amazing species. The really interesting thing, though, is that on the so that's on the species level. On the individual level, microclimate is really, really important. So, for example, the conditions which a particular beetle might have to grow up on one side of of a a garden might be completely different to a beetle that lives on the other side of the garden because one side has shade and one side has sunlight, which means that. On the individual level, it's the microclimate that's the really important thing. So, big species grow in the tropics, but just because it's in the tropics, it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll yeah. reach its full potential. A bit like humans, really, because if you don't <laughs> feed someone properly, they don't grow very much. Stuart? Yeah, only really that it, it does compare with what's happened in development of domestic dogs, where as we've domesticated them, one of the things we think's happened is that because they wouldn't have maybe got as much food as they could have done in the wild. It's, it's led to them becoming smaller. And, of course, from our point of view, that was great because no-one wants a wolf when you could have a slightly smaller, cuter-looking wolf. So, actually, this kind of not necessarily getting the nutrition that you would normally need has actually, I say, benefited us, but it's part of the domestication process. So it, it kind of it rings in true with that. So what happened to a pug then? <laughs> we, we happen to pugs, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jason, back to you. Um, wonderful question here from John, who says, each spring, the day after the ice clears from my pond, the first set of spring peepers, croakers, he's talking about amphibians, uh, crop up in the pond. He said, I was always taught that cold-blooded animals are sluggish in the cold, but these ones are not sluggish at all. Um, what does it mean to be cold-blooded? Along with living fossil, cold-blooded is... Uh my least favorite word combination, it is talking about metabolism and whether or not an organism maintains a very high elevated or constant metabolic rate or a lower metabolic rate that is basically dependent on the ambient environment that it lives in. So how much food it eats, how much oxygen it requires. And so there's this classic idea that cold-blooded animals get sluggish when the environment gets colder because the external environment controls their temperature. In the case of amphibians, many amphibian groups, especially things like croakers and peepers, they have all sorts of secondary adaptations to keep themselves warm or to keep their blood from freezing. They can have high concentrations of glucose in their bloodstream and in their tissues, and that acts as a, a natural antifreeze. And many groups of what we would call ectothermic or poikilothermic animals, so these are the classic cold-blooded groups, have actually come up with uh, secondary adaptations to function very efficiently in cooler environments. When we think of cold-blooded animals like lizards and snakes, especially lizards and snakes and their relatives, um, those animals are really specialized to conserve energy. So their type of cold-bloodedness is an adaptation for minimizing the amount of energy you have to expend in your life. So that allows a, a high degree of diversity in the tropics and certainly less numbers of species as you go up into the higher latitudes. But you still find cold-blooded animals toward both poles, and they have all these really excellent specializations for surviving just fine in cold weather. So, so basically, although their body temperature is lower, their tissues are optimized so that despite the lower temperature, they can still make their tissues, their muscles and so on work just as fast as they need to just at those sorts of temperatures. They've just evolved to, to operate at those lower temperatures. Yeah, and they've also, uh, some of them have evolved specializations to elevate their body temperatures beyond that of the ambient environment so that they can, instead of being specialized to have the tissues work at low temperatures, they can simply keep the tissues warmer than otherwise you would have uh, based on the temperature around you. Thank you for that, Jason. Now, who would like to have a speculation as to what our mystery animal was? I played you that noise. We told you that they can drink only every few days. They, they hang around in groups of males or a female who's in charge. Any, any ideas what the mystery animal was, crew? 
Who would like to speculate? Do you know, Stuart? I, do you re- I, I don't. If, if, they're, if they're supposed to be in trees, I'm a little bit less sure, but I thought oh. it was an otter. He's going otter. Ellen, you're normally pretty good at this. Any, any thoughts? It's, I don't think it's a bug, and therefore I have no clue. I think <laughs> it sounds like it should be something primate so I'm, I'm looking at you over there. What, no. Jacob? Well, uh, the, the only primates that would make a noise that squeaky would be the, the calatricids. They're the tamarins and the marmosets. They're the really tiny ones. So if I was going to say a primate, it would be a marmoset or something. Well, actually, you might be surprised to know it was a cheetah. What? Yeah, it's the cheetah. That's why it also runs at uh, nearly 60 miles an hour. Wow. Incredible. I Caught you out. I Excellent. Yeah. I didn't know they made that I bet noise. people at home don't feel so bad now. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's been, it's been wonderful, everybody. Thank you very much for your wonderful input to the programme. I have to say a very big thanks to our panel this week, who were Eleanor Drinkwater, Jacob Dunn, Jason Head and Stuart Eves. And thanks to Izzy Clark, who put the programme together. Do be sure to join us next time when we're going to be celebrating 150 years of the chemist's best friend. That is, of course, the periodic table. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.